Hello everyone, welcome to this episode of Insidicast. This week we're going to be talking about The Taking of Deborah Logan, released on the 21st of October in 2014, uh, starring a relatively small cast, uh, mostly consisting of uh, Jill Larson, Anne Ramsey, Michelle Ang, Ryan Katrona, and Anne Bedian. These are sort of like the main ones. There are some other side characters who make a relatively frequent uh, sort of showing, but really the only people to care about are Jill Larson and Anne Ramsey. That is Deborah and Sarah Logan. Most of the film is centered around these two people specifically, even more so than people behind the camera. And so I kind of chose this film for two specific reasons. One, because it gets a pretty decent amount of online appraisal. It's got quite a high uh, Rotten Tomato score. It's like 91% or something. And two, it's also Pride Month. And the main character of Sarah, Logan, the daughter, uh, she's um, a lesbian in this film. So, hey-ho, all ties in with that. And... Yeah, so I I actually have never seen this film before, and the main reason why I've never watched this beforehand is because there's so many films that came out that was the possession of this person, the possession of this person, demon here, demon there, exorcism. It's one of those things that Hollywood has done where they just milk a concept that worked very well in one film, and suddenly uh, they just can't help themselves they just come up with any random name and it's just like the haunting of this person the exorcism of this person you know and this film tries to be different by say the taking of deborah logan and i will give this film some decent amount of credit it is definitely a stretch better than a lot of people who've made these films in the past it's definitely got a sprinkling of more quality to it, but it isn't, I think, shy of flaws. I think that the audience critic on Rotten Tomatoes of like 49%, I think is actually more realistic. I don't know what the critics are thinking specifically, but hey-ho, who does? Before we get into the film into any great detail, uh, I do apologize for not being able to load an episode last week and generally just the lack of episodes in general been i uh, just generally just pretty tired and just not really in the mood to do anything so it was kind of awkward timing to sort of announce a lot of content when i don't really actually feel uh, quite in the mood to do so so the main thing is that i'm just going to focus on releasing an episode that i want to release and have uh, more quality to that episode instead of just trying to churn out episodes as fast as possible but content will always continue to come on the way because i really enjoy this and i like talking about films that mean a lot to me and it's nice that people get to listen and appreciate it as well so the taking of deborah logan what this film tries to do to separate itself from i think other versions of this type of genre is by making it a found footage film and that in itself can sound genius especially when you think about some of the big heavy hitters in found footage and how generally groundbreaking that has been for not only horror but i think for filmmaking in general and this film in my mind is not a good example of a found footage film 
this can't decide whether it wants to be a found footage film or if it wants to be a standard, you know, regular filmed thing. The main reason is because they make no effort to truly introduce any of the people behind the camera. I mean, you don't you probably don't even know the name halfway through the film. And there's a really funny part towards the end. Um, I think it's I think it's Mia who's the girl who's part of the film crew. You know, she says right towards the end of the film, she's like, uh, you know, I, I lied about um my granddad having Alzheimer's and, and Sarah just turns around saying, like, I don't care. And I was sat there thinking, I also don't care. I mean, I even forgot that you mentioned that over an hour ago. It's just so irrelevant with what's going on with the stakes at that point in the film. It just doesn't make sense. And it felt like a last-ditch effort to try and humanize these people when there is literally no content to go on uh, to make these people even relatable. When you think about films like, you know, The Blair Witch and, and Cloverfield, you know, the person behind the camera is your POV, right? So they need to see what you need to see and they need to think and say what you would be thinking and saying in those scenarios to kind of pull you in, you know, that's that's the deal. And one of the big, you know, glory points of, of found footage, uh, horror films especially, is you get a lot of moments where things can breathe, right? There's a lot of realistic dialogue. A lot of the time it comes with a decent amount of improvising, not always the case, but usually the scenes have a lot to breathe, where the actors get to sell it as being a real thing. This film, in some specific spots, is so fast-paced, it's ridiculous. And I mean, like, people screaming, people running around, the camera shaking, nobody has any idea what's going on. I don't have any idea what's going on. I can't see what's going on. The person behind the camera says absolutely nothing through substantial parts of this film despite the fact that they're seeing all the same things, right? They're seeing, like, a woman, you know, pulling skin off her own body, you know, and, and, and doing, like, mad stuff. And the person behind the camera just doesn't even react. It's like they're not even there. And it makes me feel like the found footage is nothing more than to try and have a shaky camera on set to make it feel somewhat realistic and, ooh, like... And <laughs> outside of that, it is... Uh, it's a found footage only by technicality, not by any method of, of like artistic improvement uh, to the genre. It's not trying to add anything new. It's not trying to recreate, you know, found footage in a, a completely new way for the films to replicate in itself. It's just standard, basic. And a lot of the time it has a very conflicting tone. Sometimes it wants to be very, uh, you know, hard cutting. This is like, a documentary this is um you know sort of an analytical approach to sort of a third party perspective very clinical and then sometimes it, it's overly involved where the people behind the camera are going so beyond their way to do things that they would never really normally do for someone that they don't even really know like yeah i think by the end of the film they spend a total of 40 days with these two but I don't think that that's any substantial time to start climbing through like caves with snakes and, and stuff. And it all just becomes a situation where this would 
benefit from not being um, a handheld style perspective, in my opinion. I think you could do more to build suspense and atmosphere and tension by giving the audience some outer perspective of what's going on. So that's just kind of a rant about <laughs> the technicality and uh, the the format of which the film is. So let's get into the actual the content. So the initial plot of the film is extremely vague from the outset. I almost had to quickly jot it down because I thought I missed something. So essentially, Sarah um, is sort of our main protagonist. And she has a mother who has Alzheimer's. Which is a kind of interesting plot point. It's not something the film really goes back to too much after sort of the, you know, the possession stuff happens. But the main thing is that, again, at the start of the film, it feels very clinical. So they start showing you, like, actual science videos, almost, of, of what Alzheimer's is and how it works. And it almost feels like you're watching a weird YouTube tutorial on, you know, the the anatomy of the brain and, and what happens during Alzheimer's. And I think the main issue with this for me is it never does this because it wants to play doubt in your mind. So a really good example of this is one of my favorite films, by the way, which is The Exorcism of Emily Rose. Some people think this is you know, kind of boring because it's like a court scene for the whole point. But the thing that I really like about that film is there's a whole reason why they go into the science of potential things that could explain um, a possession, right? And it's because they're not only literally trying to convince a jury one side or the other, whether it's a possession or whether it's something scientific, but they're also trying to convince the audience. And the audience has to decide themselves whether they believe it was um, you know, malpractice or some type of possession. Um, the, the taking of Deborah Logan does not do that. Instead, it shows you the information of what Alzheimer's is only to discard it away at about 20 minutes into the film because it quickly just becomes irrelevant. And that to me is a, an issue because, you know, I, I would like to have that been a continual thing that gets pressed, but it only really gets commented on outside of, oh, well, she's taking this medication and this medication is getting increased. There's nothing to cement to the audience that, actually it might not be a possession and that's also an issue with the other half of the film right so the issue is that there is a possession but there's nothing well not necessarily like a possession it's kind of like a taking over it's almost like uh like someone's spirit taking over someone else's body that type of like vibe but there's nothing really to show that happening and i think that's kind of because of the limitations of like a fan footage it means that we'll never see something off camera, which other people aren't privy to, so that then the audience has that like third perspective um, knowledge that this type of thing has uh, happened. So an example of this um, could be something like, you know, like in Conjuring or something, where someone is interacting with uh, a demon in bed or something like that, you know, and you see this like growth you know, this sort of spiritual growth and it kind of sits in. It's kind of a, a trope, but it, I mean, in a way, it kind of serves a very distinct point. And that point is to show the progression and the deterioration into a possession. The film 
does have some type of deterioration, at least physical deterioration, yet some of it is almost a little bit over the top for me. We're talking like... Sometimes it feels like it's high school level drama, like drama classes of something scary. And it's like, oh, this is the bit where the flesh falls off. And it's not that there's anything wrong with the practical makeup. It's just what's happening is so extreme and nobody reacts in a way that is, is realistic for that scenario. If someone just like degloves themselves, right? Just takes all the skin off the hands and they just have like a, a meaty skeletal hand beneath that. Uh, people just don't react in a way that is is reasonable for that type of thing happening. It's just uh, a little bit bizarre. So you have this this two sided sword, really, which unfortunately doesn't sit well for me on neither. The one is there's no real convincing medical ground basis set in stone, which makes me question whether this is actually some type of possession or some type of supernatural thing. And then there's not enough specifically uh, on the supernatural side that builds up to show that this is a progression that has a source. It just sort of comes out of nowhere. It's just, she has Alzheimer's and then next minute she's speaking in tongues. Well, she's speaking French, but you get the gist. It's almost so fast that uh, it, it... doesn't make any sense it's just so weird uh there's another underlying thing in this film which is a little bit of an issue for me which is uh sometimes sarah the daughter comes a very like uh judgy like she's very patronizing kind of judging towards her mother it's kind of like you know oh you keep doing this don't you you know this is wrong you shouldn't be doing this all the time and, you know, if you do this, like, it scares me, that type of thing. Like, this isn't someone that feels like they're talking to someone that has a medical condition that's out of their control, you know? Like, if every time, like, I, I spoke to someone with Alzheimer's and I was just like, no, you did go on that holiday. Of course you did. You liked it. You'd be like, well, that's a bit mean. Like, they clearly don't remember going on that holiday. Yeah, it comes across really, uh, I don't know, really, like, negative. It's just, it didn't feel right to me. And because of that, it doesn't convince me that they have some genuine connection. It's it's very odd. And I know they kind of alluded to some sort of, uh, you know, non-acceptance to uh, Sarah being a lesbian. But, like, I, I don't know. Like, I don't think it was, again, fully established enough. There was a lot of... Um, there was a lot of moments where the film just felt like it was trying to rush to the spooky bits, where it's otherwise like, there's no point being a film. And it's like, no, you kind of need to give this stuff some time to breathe and, and get us to know actually quite a big cast of people from the offset. You're talking like five, six people from the first five minutes of the film. Like, it's quite a lot. We need to know who these people are, like the relationship, you know, what kind of vibe they have toward each other. All that stuff is very important and this film just stinks. Nope, let's let's just hurry up to the spooky stuff quick. I, I will give credit to one thing though, which is some of the use of the factual information that sort of, uh, you know, relaying what Alzheimer's is. Uh, does do a very good job in the beginning of showing some of the struggles of living with the disease. I think that's very well done. Almost like a, a celebration of who Deborah is. 
that's quite nice. That stuff grounds it in reality, right? It's got to feel like a real family. And it, as it says in the film, this is something that impacts more than just the person involved. That stuff is super important to making this uh, have some validity to the Alzheimer's argument and not being, you know, used as some kind of ploy, you know. It's later on in the film, they talk about, oh, like, you know, she has some signs of split personality. You know, we have to be so uh, cautious these days. Like, some people will get super mad at this. And I think some of this is extremely justified, by the way. We can't just always be portraying everything spooky, wrong, evil as some type of link to some mental illness. Because it's just substantially unfair for these people who do live with split personality or schizophrenia or something like that. It doesn't always mean that you're going to be a psychopath killing people or you're going to have some weird spooky demon powers. Uh, in the context of films, I get it. It can be a factor and it can be an interesting story point and also an interesting set. So, you know, have things placed like an asylum and stuff. I just think if you're going to do that, there needs to be a lot of groundwork to cover a lot of bases. And then you think, okay, well, we know from the get-go. Kind of like I did when we talked about... Um, Grave Encounters, I think they did a good job there talking about some of the things that can be misconceived with that type of narrative before getting into like the, the deep parts of the film. Um, well, there's one really good line actually quite early on which was stood out to me the most and a very substantial key point. Uh, so I think it's one of the neighbours who's sort of like a returning person who I don't know, he's having some kind of fling with Deborah, I think, or something. I don't understand some of what was going on towards the end in the hospital. Uh, but he talks about, like, um, a care home being a place to die and, and not a place to live. This is really good. And it's very interesting. So I think part of the reason why this um, whole thing is happening, this whole documentary, is because uh, Deborah is running out of money and she can't pay for the, the house, even though... I know I would like to think by her age, someone would have paid off the house. Um, and because of that, they were doing it for money because she won't sell the house and go into care. And yeah, this, this quote like stood out to me quite a lot. There's a really interesting book um, that I've read, which is, which is a very good book uh, that I've, that I've read, uh, which talks about this, this subject quite a lot, actually. It's a book called Being Mortal. And it's written by a guy called Atul Gawande. I hope I've not butchered that. And his entire book talks about like um, illness, medicines, and, and what happens in the end. And a lot of that book is talking about general shifts in society. How um, essentially many decades ago, uh, a lot of the time people traditionally would die at home. And, you know, there was a sort of more cultural awareness and acceptance that someone was dying and like a deliberate choice to make them comfortable at home and a lot of people's deaths would happen at home this is something that happened with my nan actually where you know we chose to uh, bring her back to her house and you know she died during bed after a few days and the whole family was every day it, it was difficult waiting for it to happen but there's a point to that and we got to share a lot of uh, really nice final moments with her and the book talks about how these days a lot of uh, advancements in, in sort of hospitals and, and medical care means that a lot of the time we're 
essentially prolonging people's life indefinitely, almost, uh, to the point where it can't go anymore. A lot of the times in a hospital, you're talking people who are there for long-term stays, like months, years, and will never be able to go home because they're physically incapable. And that person has no quality of life. And it talks about like a lot of the things in society that we might need to talk about in terms of um, people having a quality of life and also a quality of death. And it not being something that can be difficult for the patient specifically. And I think that it's really good that the film touched on that. I think it's right on the nose. Um, and I would have loved just some more of this stuff just throughout at least like the first half an hour of the film. I think that's I think that's a good first act. But I think it, it really tries to push quickly to like just get things moving. When things did get moving though, uh, there was some things that did get drip fed, which kind of paid off later on. Talking about snakes, that type of thing. You know, you sort of seen the condition worsen, she gets like a leathery skin infection. And, you know, you, you sort of like see how things are kind of momenting at this point. Uh, and we get some generally creepy scenes at night. There's sort of like some camera work going on, which you can sort of see why this guy went on to direct one of the Paranormal Activity films. Um, and yeah, we got some pretty nice, like, creepy moments, like naked old woman running around. You know, fair play to, like, Jill Lawson. She did do a, a very good job playing a creepy old woman. And to be fair, I actually thought quite a lot of the time she actually didn't look old enough. Uh, she looked very young, uh, very youthful, very, very lovely. And it's only really when the heavy makeup come on that she sort of started to look more like a creepy old woman. I don't know if this is something they changed later on, but yeah, she had a lot of um, a lot of moments where things sort of flipped back and forth between like she looks okay and then she looks like shit, you know? <laughs> uh, not good. And some things didn't make sense. Uh, you know, there was a lot of moments where like where talking about the switchboard, which is quite pivotal to her youth, didn't really have a lot of significance in the long run. There was something about this, you know, linking to some serial killer. Um, but realistically, like, it kind of just was a bit of a creepy gimmick. That's all it felt like to me by the end of the film. He was just there to add some creepy noises and some telephone noises. I don't get me wrong, like, old telephones, like, they can be used in a creepy way, for sure. Uh, I think people should have leaned into it, though. Like, at least having some, like, whispering in the phone. That could have been cool. Uh, some kind of communication or talking through the phone. That'd be pretty dope. Instead, really, it was just kind of just there for general, like, creep factor because it's like an old machine. I don't know anything old's creepy, I guess. Um, and, and again, fair play to Joe. I mean, she went full on with that. She was fully naked. She fully committed to that. That is a lot for for anybody. And by the end of it, yeah, it was okay. She did some creepy growling voice, uh, which probably wasn't her, but if it was, then fair play. And that was really good, which we, you know, we later found out was the French staff from Quebec, which is kind of nice. I think that's a really interesting spin. I think a lot of time, um, in a lot of demon and ghost possessing stuff these days, like, 
because a lot of it is set in America, they tend to lean into a lot of like Latin American stuff where you know, you need Latin American doctors, witch doctors, like all that type of creepy stuff. And you don't actually um take a lot of notice of the fact that Canada is on your doorstep and they speak other languages. And French can be creepy when you add a lot of distortion on it, you know, like any language. So yeah, I, I liked that. And we get to learn a bit more from this. It's a serial killer. He killed four girls. Snakes were involved. So again, the snakes paid off. And there's a lot of like weird cult-like thing, you know, blood rituals with menstrual blood, vaginas. And, you know, everyone's a bit like, oh, that's horrific. And, you know, there was a reference to Be My Fifth, which again pays off later on. Um, I don't think that it fully pays off. I think it would have made sense that choosing the fifth person would be Deborah, even though it doesn't make sense to the plot. It makes sense to the timeline because she could have been the fifth person because she was a child, but instead Deborah's the person who finds some random child that has leukemia uh, and this child just, I don't know, accepts her fate for whatever reason. Uh, doesn't really, you know, establish in this film. Uh, if it's capable of possessing more than one person, it just, it happens. So it's like, okay. Some things were a little bit odd towards the end of the film. Filming in hospitals, very weird. It's just something that would never happen. I know that a film's got to happen. But again, this is the issue with the found footage stuff. Because if you just wanted a camera in a hospital or in a hospital room to film something happening to uh, Deborah when other people aren't around... Uh, that can just happen because the camera isn't tied to a person. Whereas when you try to establish found footage, uh, there has to be a degree of logic to cameras being there. And there is no logic. And in no realistic sense of the way would a hospital ever let someone just have cameras filming a patient in bed. They just wouldn't. It's, it just, again, this is just, moments where the film struggles with something that it set up from the beginning with because he thinks it's a good idea. So some of this um some of this dialogue kind of gets explained by this by this guy who talks about um you know I think called spirit parasites uh, and how weak minds, you know, uh, make you vulnerable and therefore like spirits can attach themselves to you. And this is kind of cool but also kind of confusing um i thought and i'm probably wrong there was some reference within the film that uh deborah had a sister and it the sister was potentially one of the victims i i don't know i think that's what it was alluding to but the issue with this is that in the beginning of the film when it was talking about the alzheimer's they were talking heavily about how deborah is very strong-minded how she resisted the alzheimer's and she you know had this really strong you know mental fortitude so that doesn't make sense as to why then she would you know succumb herself to some spirit parasite i think what makes what would make more sense narrative wise is if she was chosen because of this potential sister link i think that that's what the, the film was alluding to but I, I could be completely wrong on that uh, so that again creates this kind of weird thing where 
I'm not quite sure how much of that makes sense. Uh, but yeah, I guess we'll get towards sort of the end of the film. So, like, Deborah, like, breaks out of the hospital. The neighbor just undoes the shackles on the bed and then tries to suffocate her. I don't know why you'd have to unshackle her then. It just makes sense to keep her shackled and then you could actually potentially suffocate her. But then she goes and she steals the child, right? The the girl with leukemia. Uh, I think she was called Kara, if I'm not mistaken. And, you know, there's a lot of fiasco. There's a lot of running around at this point. Everything becomes really fast-paced. Like, you know, we're running from hospital to the house, back to the hospital, back to the house. It's just so fast and chaotic. Uh, you know, it, randomly, I, I looked away for two seconds and I looked back and we found the police and the police have, have gone to help them find Deborah and, the, we, we, you know, we found her in a field. Like, you know, blink and you miss it. it it's crazy towards the end. And, you know, we learn all the stuff where we need to burn the body and we need to do X, Y, and Z and they found a body in the attic and, you know, I don't know why a body that, that long would would smell. I don't know if it still would. I mean, it's bones at that point. I don't know. I don't have any time to think at this point. The film is just so quick. And in some moments, like, there's something quite an issue as well. Like, in some moments where people are really far away, or they talk really quietly, the film gives you subtitles, right, to fill in those gaps. And I don't feel like that that's to do with the found footage element of the film, or the documentary style, or the editing, as they talked about in the film. I think that's actually just more because you can't hear a single fucking word being said by anybody in this film. And you just, you need subtitles sometimes, or it's otherwise like you don't know what is going on. And it's actually crazy that in the final cut of the film, they didn't have other versions of these scenes where they film it and they think, can you just be a little bit louder? And sometimes they'd have this purposeful a distorting of the voice because someone's far away and then they put the subtitles on top that to me makes zero zero sense just have the voice quieter turn down the volume don't add the distortion you know or accept that it's potentially something that the person filming can't hear and doesn't know about so there's missing information and tie that into the plot you know like i saw that they were talking about something, but I don't know what it was. You know, we're getting situations where, even at the start of the film, when Sarah's, like, comforting Deborah and they're talking, they're in a room inside the house, and I think they're filming from outside, and it's all quiet and distorted, and then they're adding subtitles on top. It's like, well, how is that person going to know every word that's being said? They're inside a house. Unless they're mic'd up, which they're not shown that they've been mic'd up, you're not going to hear a single word they say. And this is where the film, again, can't decide what it wants to do and what it wants to be and if it wants to be found footage or not. And that, to me, it just becomes really distracting and tedious at some parts during the film. You get it a lot towards the end. Essentially, uh, Deborah just becomes like a spitting acid snake kind of thing, uh, which I do dig this concept, especially when uh, they turn the corner and she's like swallowing that girl. That's pretty dope. I don't know what that has anything to do with this cannibalistic serial killer who's trying to create a victim. Beats me. Uh, but it's it's a thing, because snakes are mentioned, I guess. You know, I, I thought 
if, if it's his spirit taking over her, then like he'd want to finish the ritual, but it ain't. Or if it's just some random spirit parasite, then maybe we can get more information into which one it could be and what it could do. Do we get that? No. Yeah. So <laughs> when you look at it then in retrospect, we're given a lot of information about a lot of things. You know, serial killer this, spirits this, X, Y, and Z, switchboards, hello. And none of it is actually relevant to the end of the film. <laughs> it's just, it's it's filler for the last few moments, I guess. Or filler until the last few moments, rather. And that, to me, just feels like a really big shame and a big waste. Because there's some parts of this film that looks incredible. Some of the practical effects look amazing. Uh, the acting from uh, Jill and Anne, who plays Deborah and Sarah, incredible. Those two carry the film. And I cared about them more I cared about anyone that was behind the camera. Didn't give a shit about them. Who are they? I don't know. They never introduced themselves. You know, hell, they, they spent 40 days there with all the crazy stuff that had been happening before they started saying, you know what? Uh, maybe we should leave or I want more pay. It's like, really? You saw her, like, float, like, levitating onto, like, kitchen counters. And now, ten days after that, you want to go home. Okay. And it's, part of the issue as well is that they've established with their characters no reason whatsoever why they should continue the documentary. They just do. Because if they don't, there's no film. Right? If anything, it's all at their expense, okay? They are paying each other. They are paying the family to do the documentary. And they've not established what they get out of it. This, like, what is there for these people? Why don't they just get up and go? You know, it, it was like a situation where they established that they were working for somebody who needed this footage or it's otherwise they'd all get sacked, right? So that one of the people there isn't the person responsible for paying people right you know everyone's equally in the shit if it doesn't go well then you can justify it and then it makes sense but in this film like no there's there is none there's no logical reason established why they feel compelled to stay there and i don't believe that it's because they care about these two like i mean yeah you just wouldn't like if you were going to film somebody going through the stages of dementia and you could become this personally involved, this emotionally involved into them and their family, then you were crazy for going into it to begin with. And I, I would assume a lot of these people would have some rationality. But the best way to avoid a lot of these issues is to not do it as a fan footage film. Because... You then have to justify the reason why everyone's doing things. You have to justify why we're filming, why we're following people with cameras. Sometimes people were holding the cameras and going around with the cameras that weren't, that wasn't the guy that was meant to be the camera guy. And there's no communication from anyone behind the camera. So we don't know who's holding the camera and why. And, and why other people aren't there. It's chaos, man. Uh, but alas, it, it wasn't unwatchable. And would I watch it again? Uh, maybe if someone really wanted me to. At least for the last part of the film. I can't deny that the 
snake swallowing the girl practical effect thing was dope. And I've seen the behind-the-scenes stuff of that. It's incredible. Looks great. I don't know if I can justify waiting the rest of the film for that. Uh, but if I was, you know, if my arm was twisted and I had to go into it, then I would. Again, it's not the end of the world. Yeah, so that's sort of my uh, thoughts and opinions of the taking of Deborah Logan released on the 21st of October 2014. Uh, so it was directed by Adam Robertel, I believe. Uh, he also wrote it along with a guy called Gavin Hefferman. And he went on to do um, other films. Uh, I think he did Insidious Last Key, uh, Paranormal Activity, uh... Uh, one of the last ones. I don't think people liked it. You know? You can see the trajectory. That's what I'm getting at. But alas, this film was okay. <laughs> uh, I think it could have been better. So yeah, thank you very much for listening, everybody. I will see you all in the next episode. This has been Phil at Incidicast, and we've reviewed The Taking of Deborah Logan. I try to give probably like a two and a half out of five, but that's all it's going to get from me. So I'll see you all in the next episode. Take care.